Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Sharp Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the easy R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to speechdynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Well, before we actually begin, let's go over disclosures. Regarding financial disclosures, Dr. Ray receives an honorarium from Speech Therapy PD for this podcast. And then I, of course, too, I receive an honorarium for the Speech Link. And I'm also a presenter for Speech Therapy PD and receive royalty payments. And I own Speech Dynamics. Neither Dr. Ray nor I have non-financial disclosures to report. So there we go. All right. Well, everybody, I'm just excited that you're here. I don't know if you were able to attend Dr. Ray's Jayanti's, as she likes to be called. If you saw her or heard her first two SpeechLink podcasts, they were amazing. And I'm thinking that, you know, in part that you're back because you know that she's very knowledgeable and that she presents it well, and that she really is focused on the practicality as to what clinicians do. So I'm excited that you're here. And of course, this SpeechLink podcast is sponsored, of course, by Speech Therapy PD. And I am Shar Beauchart, your speech language pathologist host. And I'm so happy that you're here for the neuroscience behind speech movements, behind speech movements. And I love the movements piece, you know, rather than just behind the speech positions and postures, but the movements, because speech is movement, practical applications. Jayanti Ray, PhD, CCC, SLP, earned her degrees, including her PhD in India in the late 1990s. Then she came to the United States and joined the faculty as an assistant professor at Washington State University. After teaching there for five years, she moved to Southeast Missouri State University, where she currently teaches in the Department of Communication Disorders as a full-time professor. Notably at SEMO, she was awarded the Outstanding Teacher Award in 2019. Love it. Well-deserved, no doubt. And the Outstanding Researcher Award in 2013, 2015, and 2017. She also recently received her 19th ACE from ASHA. She serves over 10 professional community organizations in various leadership roles, and her teaching and research interests are varied. And yes, they are. Voice disorders, which is what she talked on last time, the last two speech links. And then also she researches oral myofunctional disorders, cognitive impairments, and neurogenic speech disorders. She's presented numerous papers at local, state, national, and international conferences on a variety of topics. And as I said, this is her third SpeechLink podcast, and I always learn so much from you, Dr. Ray Jayanti. And you certainly have a way of blending research and the deeper pieces of information with practical pieces. So I've been looking forward to this. Welcome to the SpeechLink, Jayanti. Thank you so much, Charlotte. I appreciate your introduction, and thank you so much for having me. It's a lovely evening to spend with all of you just talking about, like, oh my gosh, what a passionate topic that, you know, we all chose. And also great, Char, because she helped me kind of narrow down the information and said that, okay, you could talk about this a little. Oh my, this is absolutely awesome. And that's how I'm here. Yes, yes. And it is absolutely awesome. And we do have, you know, some similar views on the oral resting posture and that kind of thing. And in reality, when I wrote the timeline for this speech link podcast, you know, I put the oral resting posture further down in our hour, but you know what? I think that we ought to maybe begin with that. So I'm going to reverse that. So I'd like us to begin to, I'd like you to readdress the oral resting posture as you see it. What are the positions? What are lips, tongue, and jaw 
postures and why are they necessary for maintaining precise articulation of speech sounds? Yes, when we think about postures, well, they are precursors to future movements. So because, you know, remember my title, it's all about movements. But now how can movements even happen when you are not stimulating your nervous system to realize what posture you are maintaining? So when I say posture, Look at your entire, oh my, I don't have a vocal tract model or something. I love that to just show you the vocal tract model. So anyway, when you look at posture, if you just look at the, just imagine looking at the lateral aspect of the vocal tract, you know that we have lips over here. It looks a little awkward when you look at the model, but you have lips, then you have our tongue, then you have our jaw, then you have our hard palate, soft palate, our teeth. Well, if we know about these nice entities in our oral cavity that resides inside the vocal tract, we are good. We are really good. But now the question is, when I say postures, postures could indicate that they are actually improving our breathing patterns needed for life breathing, which is quiet breathing and speech breathing. We want postures for articulation. So we want to make sure our speech is intelligible. And now there's some great neural connections based on studies that say postures actually connect us to acoustics. I might say, what is that acoustics? Well, the acoustics goes back to the vocal tract. Now, if I am saying, mm, that's distorted. If I'm saying, that is distorted because those are not good postures to say my vowel sounds. If I just put my tongue down and say, that is distorted. We don't want that either. So our postures actually connect us to the acoustics piece and our postures are maintained within the vocal tract, like what we tend to kind of follow. Now, not only that, now I'm not getting into swallowing and other aspects, but postures, once you think about your oral postures, they not only are important for speech, I would say for keeping the airway really open, when you have to breathe, you have to have a nice posture. And the posture means you are really taming those articulators to maintain their precise position within the oral cavity without sending any competing signal. Now you want to breathe through your mouth and you close your mouth, that's not right. And sometimes you don't have to breathe, you just keep your mouth open and try to articulate. Now that's not going to be very fruitful either. So today my topic is just focused on speech movements only. So I just give you that purview because posture is not for speech again, it's for articulation, speech, swallowing and breathing. So when I talk about tongue posture, okay, let's talk about for this lip posture. That's the first entry to your oral cavity. So the lips, so the lip posture, I would say, like if you are trying as a speech language pathologist to teach, for example, bilabials, simple sounds, like labiodentals, you're using your lips over there. You want to round your lips for the wah sound. So all of these sounds that when that come to your mind, you are thinking that the lips have to assume a good posture, first of all. And why the posture is needed? Now, that's not needed to make the movement happen, but that is the precursor to movement because you are actually maintaining an optimum tone in your lips. So when we practice that, what we're doing exactly, remember one thing, each and every part of our body is connected to the nervous system. So the way I keep my arm like this, the way I keep my arm like this, if I make my voice really tight like this, all this information is going to my nervous system and my nervous system is going crazy over those postures or you know, behaviors. So I have to make sure I'm primed and I'm really ready to have speech. So if I have to make a bilabial speech sound, the first thing is that I need to know how to close my lips and bring it to an approximation. So now you know that we have several muscles around our lips, not just one, because when I say name and lip muscle, everyone says, oh, you have a lip muscle, orbicularis oris, right? And then, but not, that's not the only muscle because you know that it's very difficult to study those muscles in isolation. Nothing in this world works in isolation. Every time you see groups getting together, it's like group work everywhere, right? We do teamwork as professionals and the muscles do their group work. So when I look at the lips, I'm looking at several other facial muscles coming toward our lips. Like, for example, you have a muscle over here, the big muscle here, buccinator. Then you have the risorius over here, all coming to the lip side. And then you have the orbicularis oris muscle. So you have the inner part and the outer part and the part that is kind of, there's some concentric circles inside. So if you just go with the split hair analysis, there's a lot to learn. But 
do we really have to care about that? Yes, we do, but we have to know it. But I don't think we are actually able to just say or claim that one muscle is actually doing all the work. So we are working on the lower lip and upper lip and the muscles that interdigitate with the orbicular isoris. This group of muscles are all working together to make sure. So when you do your oral neck exam, all of us do that, right? We say, okay, can you pucker your lips? Can you spread your lips? Can you just close your lips tightly? So all those postural effects and dimensions are coming from how the muscles contract. Now, when I say just a simple posture, closing your lips, the muscles are indeed contracting. And it is not, we're not making any movements, but the muscles still are contracting because that's the tone that we need to have at rest. And that tone further exemplifies that posture to be able to get to the platform to produce some speech sound. So once you get the posture, you say, hey, can you close your lips slightly tighter and make a nice little closure, but not that lax. We want to make it a little tighter. And then we apply slight force. I'm not saying that it's a huge force and you just kind of like the way we lift weights. No, it's not like that. But very optimum force that's needed to make sure that we're able to at least trap the air inside our oral cavity to be able to say that the sound or so now the question is that you may not need the same force as you go into syllables look i'm moving posture a little bit to the production unit here so if you are suppose telling our client to say a b so i'm not making the like that I'm saying B, or I'm making boo, or I'm making bay. So you're having, you're still going with the basic posture to keep the lips closed, and then you are kind of releasing in different ways. Now you see that if we focus on just one muscle and say, hey, I'm doing lip strengthening, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But no, we are looking at the movement. Ultimate thing is the movement. But before that, think about posture. So it is like, you know, when you are ready to run a marathon, you are not going to lie down and say, okay, you just you know, shoot that thing, you know, like whatever, you just give me a ready signal. I will be just getting up from my you know, lying down posture and get on my feet and run. That's not possible. It is very difficult to go through that chain of, you know, motor activities. So instead, we have a ready posture. Our nervous system is primed for that. And they say that, well, you're ready for what? Oh, ready for speech sound. Oh, what do you do in speech sound? We have to have movements. So those movements just come automatically. Now, the thing is that I link speech to nervous system all the time on our neural circuits all the time is because every little thing we do, every behavior that we produce, it directly links to a certain area in our brain. And if you ever go to PET studies or if MRI studies, you'll be able to notice that whether it is non-speech movement or speech movement, there's something happening. So we cannot deny the fact that if you're working on posture, that's not going to be fruitful. So I would say that even if it's a tiny little muscle contraction or tone, you are connecting that through your cranial nerves. And the cranial nerves are further connected to those areas of the cortex because you know the cortex, which is all for volitional acts, speech is volitional. So the cortex will be activated. It cannot directly go to your cortex and activate that. No, that's not possible. You all know that from our cranial nerves, we go to certain stations in the brain where further movement-related information is analyzed so that we get the perfect movement. If I have to say, bah, I want to see that. Neither I can say, it was a neurological deficit. That's a different thing. But I cannot mess up with my movements. I have to precisely make that movements. And what you want in speech are precise movements. We do not want to accept that's not 100%. So that's the way I treat my children with cleft lip and palate. That's the way I treat children with developmental autic disorders. I would say I'm fully motor person. I'm not getting language into play, but I'm just saying that I just have to go through a system because speech is systematic. So you have to do one that leads to another. But now when you analyze that, that's good to know just because there's numerous theories and research articles from physiology that support this. But again, if you're looking at the big picture, the speech, and said, oh, the speech just happens. It doesn't happen. You work toward it. And once it happens, you don't have to look back. What do you do? Forget about all those steps that you did. You don't have to do anything. Let's just sit back and relax and say, oh, you know that speech is automatic. So once you're able to bring that speech to a highly volitional level and deal with automaticity, then there is no point in going back and saying, hey, how do you know? How do you produce that? Because that stage is already done. So it is such a 
in the sense of beautiful, beautiful, I would say, motor sequence and everywhere postural effect comes into play. I just gave examples of lips, but we have tongue posture, we have jaw posture, we have postures, the soft palate. I wouldn't say anything with a hard palate because hard palate doesn't move. And I think that we make contact, but the active posture contributors are important because you have to understand that dynamics internally to be able to produce speech externally that connects us to acoustics and intelligibility. Yeah. Shari, were yes. you supposed to say something? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just want to jump in a little bit, you know, because this is, I love studying about all of this and working with the kids and just observing and, you know, watching them develop and helping them to generate the lip closure and that kind of thing. And here's kind of how I've learned to view all of that. I see it from a postural standpoint, like you were talking about lip closure. So that's your posture and you begin there and that's kind of your core, your position. I call it kind of the zone, you know, where you're in the speech zone there when lips are closed, same thing with the tongue positioning. So I see it as posture, but then also you were talking about the muscle exertion and the mild tonus contraction that you have to exert to get them closed and then to maintain that closure. And years ago, I worked with a man, you know, and people have probably heard me say this a gazillion times, Dr. Raymond Hall, years ago, a physiologist, and he told me about strength, tone, and endurance and lip closure, you know, as we are exerting that mild tonus contraction over time, that then sort of moves into the endurance realm. And so, you know, you're putting out a little bit of effort, you know, a little bit of I'm going to say it's not strength, but you have to put out some effort to get the lips closed. And then and you have to have some tonicity there to maintain that closure, some mild tonus contraction. And then as to maintain closure, you're actually applying some lingual or some labial endurance. And I see it there as positional and then also kind of as, as muscular, you know, so that you have the positional piece and then also the muscle piece. And now you have given us the neuro piece. And I love that. I love that. And, you know, and I really haven't studied that much about this. And so this is fascinating to me. Would you mind talking about the tongue and its positions and, you know, all of what you were telling us about the lips, very fascinating can you tell us a little bit about the tongue yeah. too? Because that's kind of where we all live. You <laughs> oh know, my. Is, is live for tongue placement and tongue movement. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. And next dynamic structures, like as you enter into the vocal, means oral cavity in the vocal tract, you just kind of bump into this tongue. Oh my, Char, I spoke about it. Tongue is a muscular hydrostat. All of us can deny this fact. So you have to make sure the tongue cannot be all over the place. Nothing will be precise and tongue can be rigidly located in the center of your mouth. Nothing's going to happen. The tongue is highly dynamic. So if we want to make the back of the tongue move, you have to somehow make sure the front of the tongue doesn't move at the same time. And that's a neural control, right? Because you know that your target and you want to know, oh, I want to make a back sound. So I used to do that years ago without even knowing anything. Sorry, this is like something that I did not study like right out of you know, grad school. I said, you know what? Let me have a tongue depressor. I have to stop the anterior part of the tongue to move. Yeah, hold it down. Was, yeah, I know. And I would give, oh, okay, instruction after instruction after instruction. Would you please not move your tongue? Whatever you say, nothing was processed by the child. So what I thought, okay, it's time for me to provide some tactile feedback or some sort of the tactile feedback in first place. I like that just because it actually helps the child to understand the position of the tongue inside the oral cavity. Like what position is conducive to product, producing speech sounds. So for that, I never asked the child in first place, produce the sound. I was like, hey, I'm holding your tongue tape, you know, just keep pushing your tongue up and see how high you can go. Okay, hi, hi, hi. So I'll just make them go with my little visual feedback. So that I'm talking about these little kiddos who had dis developmental dysarthria back then. So they were all diagnosed with either spastic cerebral palsy or one was athetoid or maybe it's just all over the place, like cerebral palsy. So anyway, working with them was really tough. So I would say, okay, just wait. Let me just touch your tongue with my tongue blade or tongue depressor. And then I would just tell them, go ahead 
head and make sure you're putting some force in the back. So that we'll practice that for some time. Then say, now let's start on our voice and see where that goes. And because of spasms and other things, it was very difficult to keep their tongue in place. But I still tried. They got their sounds. They got ga within seven days of therapy. That was like two weeks. I used to work there every day at the School for Spastic Society. So that's what I used to do all day, every day, 7 a.m. And a 4 p.m. until we did the transfer happen. So anyway, those kiddos, you know, we, we used to talk about posture a lot. And, you know, it has to be in the right place. Never use the word posture, you know. But just like that, that's my fresh out of grad school. I got a tongue depressor, depressed the front of the tongue and said, oh, that is great. Because in the past, they never got their ka or ga sound just because the tongue was not making that contact because the tongue was moving in different directions. So that took a while for them to understand. Now, why am I talking about this tactile thing? I could have just told them, look at me, say ka, ga. Okay, what sounds are these? These are the back sounds. They're not visible. You can see what's going on. And these are kiddos, you know, like maybe seven, eight years, nine years. They're all, like they are different age ranges, but they won't understand that. So I say, well, let me touch your tongue. And that worked great with the tactile feedback. What happens? The neuroscience behind that is because of tactile feedback, you actually develop great proprioceptive sense. And with that proprioceptive sense, you can realize that where is the tongue within the space? And here, I mean, the space is our oral cavity. So once they realize the space, do you know what you're doing to the brain? Yes, we are actually creating, I don't know how, when, what, but theoretically based on the models, I can say that, but you cannot see that unless we view some data, like known imaging data. But back then, you know, when I was just using this, I could understand that you're creating some somatosensory maps. And what are the somatosensory maps? They are embedded in many studies and that actually are about speech, motor control models. So there are numerous models and each model just specifies one aspect of speech. So going back to the postures of the tongue. So when you are tactile or producing some tactile sensation in the tongue, that actually heightens the proprioceptive awareness and which is dependent on mechanoreceptors. So what are mechanoreceptors? Like you put pressure and this pressure sensor say, yeah, we got some, you know, nice, you know, input about pressure. So you have to put some pressure somewhere on the tongue to be able to release the rest of the tongue to assume it's normal movement. So that's what I did. Okay, Jayanti, we have two terms there, the somatosensory uh-huh. piece, and then what was the other one, the mechanic? The mechanoreceptors. Say that again. Mechanoreceptors. Mechanoreceptors. Receptors, yeah. Okay, can you explain both of those? Because okay. I know that somatosensory, your skin is somatosensory, but yeah, kind of what is somatosensory so, and then the other, the mechano. So somatosensory is that when there's an area where two you know, organs or two different structures are touching one another or that map is created, which is the contact information that is taken to the part of the brain that analyzes the visuospatial relationship. Like where is the tongue? So how the tongue is touching the soft palate or hard palate or not touching at all, just creating a configuration. So that's what is the somatosensory map that helps us understand like the speech sound production aspect. It's just one tiny aspect of it. But everything, as I told you, work together. So posture with some tactile feedback leads to a very beautiful somatosensory map. For example, if you want to try to teach a ka sound, very simple thing. I'm sorry, I shouldn't voice that or ka sound. So you are actually trying to create that posture and you don't have to do it all the time. If the child really recognizes that that's how they need to control their anterior tongue, they can easily do ka And I saw that. And it is very difficult to see those kind of great improvements in children with cerebral palsy. But again, the severity matters. So I am not saying that I treated like very severe cerebral palsy children and made those great strides and improvement of tongue posture as a movement, but they were capable of doing that. You know that all the time you have to understand who has what type of potential by providing them a series of stimuli, looking at stimulability, looking at their 
environment, their motivation, their concept formation, their cognition. So all of these play a great role, but just focusing on the tongue posture, because the tongue posture, if you're doing it right, it leads to a good somatosensory map. And once that map is established, your tongue will automatically strive for that motor pattern. So let me push the back of the tongue and take it to my palate, make a contact and not just make a contact, make a good contact. And as I was mentioning, we don't need 100% force, but at least 20%. That much is good enough to make that contact and give us a very good acoustically sound sound. So that's, for example, the cup posture I said. But then other postures that, Char, you're so good at that. And you can explain that. But lateral bracing, oh my, that's my favorite topic, you know, lateral bracing. Like, I don't know if it's just a gift of nature or what. We never learn like that. Oh, we have to take our tongue up, touch to the upper molars, make it all anchored. And then we can say our R sound. It just happens. But when it doesn't happen, that's why speech language pathologists need to focus on posture, make sure that you are able to give the proprioceptive awareness to those structures, make sure they're all precise. They're not just, oh, just do it, you know, that's okay. But no, you have to kind of make sure that the child understands that. Without that understanding, they will not have the memory because they have to, first of all, have the attention. Okay, attention, it directly connects to the articulatory areas in our brain that are really trying their best to make sure they help facilitate the production of that particular sound. So you're looking at cognitive piece, you're looking at all the stimuli that are going through and helping with the posture. So we talked about somatosensory map, quite complex because it's just not one aspect that builds the map. There are many variables that actually contribute to the map. If I'm seeing the one side of it, then I'm wrong. So another term that you asked me to explain, actually that term is mechanoreceptors. Mechanoreceptors means the receptors are nothing but neurons. They just carry sensory information from different places. So if I touch my skin, that's kind of just simple touch. But if I apply some pressure on my arm, then that means that pressure is recognized by mechanoreceptors. So these are pressure receptors. Our tongue has proprioceptors, pressure sensing proprioceptors. So that tongue can sense the pressure. So once you're telling the tongue what to do by applying some pressure on the anterior part and letting the posterior part go up, or you're teaching an R sound, you don't want the tongue to touch in all places so that it, R sound will not be attained, but you want certain only the lateral margins of the tongue to touch your molars, upper molars. So you are trying to free up some space so that R, which is a very complex sound, I do understand that. But the thing is that those postures actually help you attain that. It's a matter of taming all the receptors that you have on your tongue or on your articulators, and you have to provide proper stimulus. Very precisely, you provide some sort of input. That input creates a pattern, and the pattern is ultimately stored in our memory so that you can produce it over and over and over until you reach that precise production. Once the production is achieved, and then, you know, it's an easy <laughs> downhill, like you can quickly glide down without any, you know, system effort or maybe no additional thought because it becomes automatized. And that's the beauty of motor learning when you harness the potential of a nervous system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are you taking advantage of our new handy feature, the certificate tracker? Keep a record of all your CEUs, not just for any of the 750 audio and video courses here at SpeechTherapyPD.com, but from anywhere. Upload your certificates and voila, you have an organized all-in-one place record of all your CEUs. Cool. See, I love this because I've always thought of proprioception of, you know, the tongue. There isn't much space in there, but it does move through space. And it does, you know, for example, when we were saying a s sound, the S sound, the front part of the tongue is sustained in space. I mean, it's being helped through a couple of places that, you know, provide the stabilization, but the front part of the tongue isn't touching anything. It is sustained in space. All fricatives have an element of that spatial quality to them. So there's that proprioceptive spatial thing, but I never thought about proprioception as far as pressure. So like just the gentle tap of the front part of the tongue, you know, I mean, there is an, an element of pressure there, not much, or if you're, you know, because you have to, you know, build up air behind. So you have to, you know, achieve some a level of closure and then some gentle pressure to maintain and then burst force for that T you know, in the D. So that pressure you're saying is 
proprioceptive oriented. Now, proprioception, if we could sort of delve another layer deeper here. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of reading about this, but boy, you know so much more about this than I do. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, You're teaching it, you know, you're teaching it and you're studying it and you're researching it. And I love it. It's wonderful. As far as the proprioceptors, Mm-hmm. Is it the muscle spindles? Yes, exactly. Okay. Tell me a little bit about the muscle spindles. I have always sort of envisioned them in between the muscle fibers, you know, to a degree. Is that, am I kind of on the right track? Yeah, you're on the right track because the proprioceptors, the receptors are inside the muscles and that's why our tongue is so unique. And when we say, like, I'm going to delve into a little bit of neurology, when you feel that, oh, this person has tongue paralysis. So tongue paralysis doesn't mean that the proprioception is lost because tongue paralysis is due to the 12th cranial nerve, you know. And when we say proprioception, we are looking at like, you know, there's some so many pathways that overlap and that's why it's, everything is so complex. Like a, one cranial nerve communicates with one another cranial nerve, they form some pathways. So these kind of travel together and the tongue, definitely the muscles have proprioceptive units that help determine where the tongue should be in space. Sometimes the tongue touches somewhere in the mouth. We know where it's touching. So if we're just thinking of tongue in the space, that's just a part of proprioception. But even you get proprioceptive output based on how the tongue is rising itself and which part is rising, which part is depressed. And when that one part of the tongue depresses, you know, it is not the tongue does it in isolation because the muscle that helps depress the tongue will be able to do something else to our chin muscles, you know, that muscles on the mandible muscles on the floor of the mouth. And sometimes we also see that when the tongue moves, it is not the tongue alone that moves. We also see a part of our hyoid bone, you know, it's a hyoid bone moves, our epiglottis moves. So we're just kind of in a big family, like trying to kind of make sure that everyone has little job to do. That one person makes a movement. If it's a big movement, the rest of them are just thinking, I need to contribute to that movement. The tongue alone cannot go forward or backward. You're also working from here. Your larynx moves up if the tongue goes forward. Your hyoid bone moves upward if the tongue goes forward and vice versa. So everything goes down means it's of the entire unit. But sometimes what happens, there's some differential movements. So imagine if we kind of think about a pathway where the proprioception is lost. So then the tongue will try to adapt itself. That's why my next kind of topic is neuroplasticity. So when you interfere with the tongue movement or interfere with the lip movement, I'll tell you quickly because you can see my lips, not my tongue as much. See, if I suppose I touch my upper lip and not make it move at all, you know, and you ask me to say, say, bah, say, bah, and I'll keep it like this. You say, bah, bah, bah. Do you see that how it is happening? This is my nervous system trying to make sure that even if there's an obstacle here, I can still produce a great bar because that's a proprioceptive thing is how much my lower lip should move, even with the visual feedback. And you don't have to have a mirror. So you will know exactly, but you have the somatosensory map in your brain and your acoustics is connected to that. What should be the outcome? People should be able to hear the outcome that is bar. So how can I make it possible? So you're having all those units Actually, there are some so many sensors over there, touch sensors and a sense temperature sensors, pressure sensors, and so proprioceptive sensors are also there. And these pathways are very complex. They kind of work together, like the vibration and the proprioception, they kind of follow one pathway. And there are some other fibers that also join them, depending on the complexity of the task. So it is kind of it becomes highly complex. And then sometimes I feel like how much I should teach, you know, because (laughs) some things that are practical, that's okay. But when you get to that split hair analysis, you feel like, oh my gosh, then those people have to do some research, like the physiologists and all, (laughs) and people who work with human physiology and specific group of muscles, they don't touch the entire body. They just are focused on a particular group of muscles. Those research findings are really precise. And all you need to do is understand that and kind of see what we exactly are doing, can we just use those findings and make ourselves highly informed so that we are 
very versatile in making changes to a practice so that I always believe that one size doesn't fit all. So you might have two children with cerebral palsy, one child with something and three children with developmental articulation disorders. But the way you treat them is not how everyone responds, the way they respond. So we're looking at their individual stimulability. We're looking at the status of the individual nervous system. We're looking at them like how they are actually analyzing the sensory feedback they're getting from therapy, how they're producing that output and how they're getting motivated. Are they able to produce more sounds? Are they just do five repetitions and I'm done? And SLPs, oh my gosh, we cannot literally sit in one session and make a five-year-old or three-year-old do 500 repetitions. And that's what the beauty of motor planning, that if you have to have a good motor memory for a particular speech sound, for a particular target sound, whatever you learn, you have to have more than 500 repetitions. But I feel like, oh my gosh, 500 repetitions, how do you space it out? How do you, now that takes us to some more creative ways, like that's where the neuroscience, the neuroscience behind movements, like where we try to find out that we cannot just be, again, be hyper-focused on just posture, just movement. We have to take it to a broader level so that you are recruiting every possible neural circuit to kind of jump in and talk about these movements that are happening. Yeah. It is a lot, but I know we do it all. We do it all so beautifully. And thanks to all (laughs) speech language pathologists, I should say, who are making a big difference in their own worlds, you know, where they're practicing or seeing kiddos every day. Yes. Yes. Well, take me back to the tongue. Okay. The muscular hydrostat. And, you know, like when we generate that mid-tongue contraction piece, you know, the mid-tongue contraction that elevates the front part of the tongue. Mm -hmm. So that obviously is the longitudinal, what is it? The superior longitudinal, whatever. Mm -hmm. But then you're also saying that others down here, like the transverse and all those other guys get into the act as well. And tell me more about the contraction. Like you were talking about the contraction of the elevation of the back of the tongue. Okay. I'd like to know more about the contraction of the mid tongue and how that influences the front part of the tongue. Because I know you cannot lift the front part of your tongue unless you contract the mid tongue. It doesn't happen. Yeah. You can't do that. that. I mean, that's like an elephant's trunk. (laughs) You contract the part that is nearest to the part that you want to elevate or to move. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? that? Yeah, no problem. Okay. Let me see where I can get started. Yeah. Tongue. Okay. So the tongue movements are really complex and we really want to make sure that we have full control on the tongue. Sorry to say that, but that's what we have to do to good articulatory output. So based on what you asked me, so to get that mid-level contraction and just come from the perspectives of these muscles that we have in our tongue. So we have our tongue, which has to be tethered, you know, to some place because you cannot have a flying tongue, of course, but we have to have some stability. So we have the root of the tongue, the one which we are resting our tongue, the mandibular floor, and we go back, we have the hyoid bone giving some support to the tongue. But then the tongue, if we are looking at the muscles, you know, the tongue is kind of carried, you know, it's really, it's like a basket with a handle. We want to keep the basket from one position to another in the oral cavity. We're getting some great speech sounds. So just consider those muscles and those are the extrinsic muscles coming from somewhere and getting into the tongue. We need those muscles really well because those muscles help us to move our tongue inside the oral cavity. But then what you are asking me, now I'm not going to talk about those muscles because those will be like, okay, stick your tongue out, take your tongue to the side and lateralize uh, uh, up and down. Okay, I can do with that. But when your tongue is inside your oral cavity, those muscles are not necessary because no one speaks with the tongue out of their mouth. I'm just saying. So you right. are actually trying to get to those intrinsic muscles, all of them. Yeah. Sure. And you mentioned yeah. a few examples already. So imagine your tongue is like this. On the top of the tongue, we have superior longitudinal. You mentioned longitudinal. So I'm saying, just look at my hand over here, superior longitudinal. Over here on the bottom, we have inferior longitudinal. So these muscles, have to work together. So they have to work together to maintain a tone when you're talking about posture. They have to work together to maintain those contractions. But how will they contract? So when you're looking at the superior longitudinal muscle, so if that muscle contracts, it is just my tongue shape. So it creates a dip or a concave shape in the 
center of the tongue. And that contraction is like a tongue bowl. So if I kind of take a drink of water, I'll show you that. I know I'm going to be too adventurous with that, but this is what I strongly contracted my superior longitudinal muscle to be able to create that tongue bowl. So I showed you my teeth, but nothing came out. I was worried about that. I didn't want to have water in my mouth and outside. So anyway, so that is the superior longitudinal. So now you want to just kind of make sure that that contraction is important. So that's the muscle that's going to make that contraction. But bottom of that, we have this inferior longitudinal, which will actually take the tongue tip kind of down if needed. You know, when you are not doing any tongue tip work and you are trying to use your middle part of the tongue or back of the tongue, the tongue tip has no work to do. So that that particular muscle in contraction will keep the tongue tip down because you don't need that. The moment you feel like, oh, I have to say, la, 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 that muscle works. And not only that muscle, you are actually harnessing the potential of other extrinsic muscles. Remember I told you at all times, if you have an action, it's not just about one muscle. It's about multiple muscles working together. So when you have to lift your tongue tip to say la 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 or and make a little groove and make sure the tongue tip is still elevated by not touching, as we were mentioning earlier. So for that, we need those muscles to work together with this muscle. So what happens when we have just one muscle or a wrong group of muscles working, you get you do not get the actual posture, actual movement, but you try, but you are not able to tell the child, oh yeah, you remember this muscle, we are going to work on that. No, you don't have to tell them that which muscle is contracting, which one is doing what. You have to just show them the posture. That's what we do because it's easy way to just attend that posture and then you kind of go with the movement later on. But now as I get back to mid-contraction of this tongue, I would say there are two more muscles, like the transverse muscle, and the vertical muscle. So if you have to ever say a vowel sound, what do you do? You open your mouth, right? So when you open your mouth, you don't have to have the tongue at a high position to say a vowel sound like ah. So your tongue automatically goes down. But imagine this is how the family of muscles come into existence is that when you open your mouth, your jaw muscle is working and feel that your temporomandibular joint is moving. Your jaw muscles are all working to open your jaw. And the tongue muscle, it immediately receives that signal. Oh, what is happening to the jaw? Is it going to be an ah sound? Automatically, they're primed. So the tongue muscles, which are the vertical muscles, they kind of make the tongue really flat and not so much tension. You don't need so much tension with the ah sound. We just need the proper tone in the muscle. So that flattens the tongue. It goes down all the way to the root of the tongue and rests on the mandibular floor. So you're able to have a perfect ah sound, valve. But now the time comes and you want to make a great la sound, a t sound, a da sound. The tongue cannot have the posture anymore. The vertical muscles are told, shut down. You cannot work now. So the transverse muscles come up and say, we are going to narrow the tongue. That's a tongue posture again. So without narrowing our tongue, we really cannot say a la sound or a ta sound. So sometimes what happens, I having worked with those kiddos who really do not have any motor control, I literally put my fingers into their tongue and said, do not keep your tongue down. Try to close your mouth and that can help your tongue not to become flattened, but it will elongate on its own because you're using a different group of muscles. So once their tongue is kind of narrow and I close their mouth with putting some pressure on the jaws, I'm facilitating a posture here. So then I take the tongue. <laughs> Great gloves, and sometimes they use tongue depressors. Sometimes they say, "Just go in," you know. Don't no worries. I always ask for permission. Can I? Because I used to work a lot with the proprioception and tactile sensation, all that stuff. So nowadays I don't work. So anyway, I still remember those <laughs> days working. But anyway, so the transverse muscle helps elongate the tongue, and you can have that elongated tongue. Like imagine when you catch some snowflake when it is snowing, or a frog <laughs> catching an insect. Like anyway, you're not going to be a frog catching an insect, but I've just imagined the tongue getting narrowed and very precise. And so it can touch the exact target articulator to produce that sound. Like la, you can do t and da and na. Anyway, those are the alveolar sounds. So for those, you need to have that transverse muscle. Now, all of these muscles work together in like, uh, I would say in harmony. So whenever something is needed, someone else has to keep quiet, you know, because that's the main thing. Like if you're mid a part of the tongue is contracting, the other part should not be interfering with that movement. And if one part of the tongue is trying to make that movement, the other parts should be in synergy. And that's why we call it muscular synergy, that the muscles just work together, condition the tongue and make sure they're elevating the most important muscle groups to work in order to reach
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Muscle synergy. I like that. I also use the term differentiation of movement. And, you know, where one part does its job and the other parts just sort of sit back and support. And would you say, and I thought of development as just a weeding out of, you know, the differentiation piece of which parts need to work and which parts don't. And, you know, so, you know, as you have an infant, you have them, you know, they're babbling and they're doing just the corner vowels and so on. And then they get a little bit more daring. And so that they're, you know, they add additional vowels. And then you have the easier jaw-driven, you know, bilabials and so on. They're not really P's and B's, but they're babbling B's and so on. And then as they learn to, you know, stabilize more efficiently and effectively, then they sort of weed out some of those larger gross movements and I just see development as a differentiation process. And that's kind of what you just mentioned now, is that some muscles learn to sort of, you know, step back and observe, or they support, you know, nearby, but they don't have a major role. And that's kind of what I see as differentiation, but interesting. Okay. Do you look at the tongue's resting posture as being important? Yeah, the tongue resting posture is very important because I would say for proper breathing pattern and to really keep your mouth closed because you don't want to facilitate open mouth breathing or it means you don't facilitate, you don't encourage open mouth breathing. So the tongue resting posture, as I know, like, you know, it's kind of an universal thing. So you really don't want the tongue to be like touching the alveolar ridge even without your knowledge. It's an automatic, you know, setup. It's an automatic, you know, house for resting our tongue. So I believe that posture is very important for future dentofacial growth. And that all gets into otomyofunctional domain because it's all about the dentofacial environment, how we can control the growth of these dental structures. You know, sometimes we need some early orthodontia, like my son did early orthodontia just because, you know, I'm a speech pathologist mom. So you know how that goes. You know, I just didn't care. They said, oh, you have to wait for a few more years. Nope, nope, nope. We need to get it right now because it's very important. So anyway, so I think that's that part, you know, takes care of your proper breathing. Yeah. Proper, you know, speech production, airway, you name it. Like every possible thing is related to tone like our body maintains and again not only the tongue if you just imagine any limb in our body any structure in our body they all have to be in a state of equilibrium otherwise you'll be spending too much energy on those so that's Mm -hmm. what the nervous control is our neural control is all about so some things happen very naturally we maintain those postures and sometimes we feel like if we are not having those postures it's important to voluntarily teach ourselves to have these postures. And again, there is habit strength. And that takes us to neuroplasticity. And that means, you know, if you are getting into certain habits, you have to make sure that you maintain that and how to do that. You just harness the potential of the nervous system. You know, the more and more repetition you're going to have, the better the posture is going to be. And if you are able to maintain that with great motivation, better the outcomes would be. And then if you're having the child to understand like the dynamics of all these movements, I'm not saying at all times that to be sitting there and maintaining the tongue posture. It's not that, but whenever they're not speaking, I would say, hey, remember where your tongue is? I don't have to do anything. Just kind of ask them, hey, remember where your tongue is? It's just reminders. That's all they need to do. And again, it depends on the cognition and other aspects. I'm not getting into those details, but if it is possible, you know, just some reminders and there's some repetition, sometimes modeling the movements and sometimes just showing them then this is what happens. We don't do this. And that's, that is cognition piece. Like they create that cognitive framework in the mind to understand that what is right and what is not right. So focus on the right, the wrong thing automatically disappear because they're focusing so much on one right posture, the other abnormal or maladaptive patterns will not exist because they're replacing those with more correct postures. And that's again, takes us back to the pruning. So, you know, like when you get a weed, what do you do? You just can't take the weed off and keep your flower beds intact. Same thing, suppose there's a dead rose in your rose bush. You don't want to keep that. You keep pruning. So that pruning occurs. And you know what? I'm going to tie the pruning into differentiation that you said. I did not use the word differentiation just because that's a developmental term. So I'm talking about some speech, sound development, 
at a later stage. So that when the differentiation takes place, like that's a, that's like acquiring more mature neural control on the articulators. So you can really have control on your tongue muscles to so not move your jaw with your tongue, not move your lips. But in reality, if you see the articular graph where you put electrodes, there are some movements. Those are the subtle movements that are facilitatory in nature. That's not like independent movements and or gross movements or everything's moving together and nothing moves at all. So those are like immature patterns and we all kind of see that development. It's like how we get more differentiated movement patterns. But then some studies on adults show that there's sometimes the movements happen together, like groups of muscles are recruited to make the movements happen. That's the reality. We do not focus on one single muscle to make anything possible at all. So that's totally wrong because there's evidence like how we start from respiration to voicing to articulation to resonance. You go anywhere in the speech system, you always see groups of muscle working together. And sometimes you see one muscle taking the lead. You know, there are always leaders in the groups. So one is a lead muscle and that's what you have to work on maybe. And then other muscles just condition themselves to help facilitate that particular big muscle's job that is the, or the leader muscle and not the big muscle for mouth because they're all small muscles. But then, you know, you are also looking at some of the muscles that should not do their job. You know, we have different terms and agonist, antagonist and synergist. So we have to have those three groups all in harmony to make sure the movements happen in the right manner. What were those three? Agonists, A-G-O-N-I-S-T, agonist, antagonist, A-N-T-A-G-O-N-I-S-T. And then the other group is synergist. Hmm. So hey, synergy, I like the synergy because all the muscles kind of dance together to get a nice posture, a nice movement. And yeah. that, that's kind of the fun part. Yeah. And the antagonist, okay, I kind of get that one. What's the first one again? Agonist. Agonist. What is that? That's like the muscle that is supposed to work. Like suppose I'm talking about, oh, you want a pharyngeal closure. Without that, you cannot say, ah. If I say, ah, my pharynx is open. So that pharyngeal port is open. So the major muscle that actually closes the port is the levator belly palatini, which kind of makes the majority of the soft palate. So it lifts the soft palate up to close the villopharyngeal port. So I would say that's the agonist. So the agonist muscle, I might be saying it differently. The agonist, I can say or agonist, agonist muscle. Let me say it this way. Then the muscle that will kind of help in its entirety, that is a very, I would say, it's a, one of the lead muscles that actually closes up the villopharyngeal port. There are other structures that does it, but that closure is dominant in over, I would say, 90% of speakers. So right. <laughs> you have that muscle and then you have other muscles that are helping with the closure. And sometimes the walls, the fairings, they're coming closure. That, that there are some other muscles that are helping with this thing. But that's all like, I would say, synergy group. But then there are some say, muscles okay. that are opposing the act. Suppose you want to breathe. You don't want to say, ah, you want to just breathe. So you cannot have the port closed because you cannot breathe that way. So if you want to breathe, the, your villopharyngeal port is open and your levator veli palatini muscle, that doesn't contract. So instead, you are lowering the soft palate by using the palatoglossus. So the palatoglossus muscle, which is a tongue and palate muscle, it elevates the tongue and pushes the palate down. And that's a muscle that kind of keeps opening. Suppose you say, mm, it opens a pharyngeal port. If you say, mm, it opens a pharyngeal port. Remember the three speech sounds that need the port opening. And that's happening because your levator really palatine is relaxing and making sure that palatoglossus is also following some action. So these are like, because An one is one has closed, one is open. So agonist and antagonist. Okay. And then okay. the rest of the muscles that would work together, they're synergistic. Yeah, yeah. I like those guys. Okay. All right, good. Good, good. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, you know, we have just a handful of minutes left. But if you would touch upon the motor training piece, and oh, I know yeah. that gets you into the neuroplasticity and all of that, but just, yeah. just if you would hit on that, because you know, once we get the speech sounds and whatever that we're working on, whether we're working on sounds or syllables or words or whatever, and we want to really establish that proprioceptive movement memory, and that's the motor learning piece, I think, but expand on that and what's happening neurologically. Is that what the neuroplasticity piece is? Yeah, Heading sure, into that know, realm? Right, right, right. You're right. So when I say neuroplasticity, like I'm not looking at disorders all the time. Like all of us are using neuroplasticity 
our based principles in learning in our day-to-day life. So we learn something, I can just say, okay, I'm breathing. And if I learn some deep breathing and relaxed breathing, I just use neuroplasticity to create a nice neural network that will remind me, hey, do you know how to breathe with the full relaxation? That's what it is. So anyway, so anything we do behaviorally is going to create a very special neural circuit to be the which could remind us of that particular motor activity or habit that we learned. If I say habit, that will take some time. If I say just an activity, it's within a short amount of time in your therapy. So we always have to understand that anything that you're doing in therapy, this doesn't happen automatically in first place. You are working really hard with your client to establish those motor patterns. And then if you just create that learning pathway by providing appropriate tools and strategies, you're actually creating a nice neural pathway that could only be altered if you want to. So you can make it better, but you want to keep working at it. That's that's why you have a behavior. It creates a pattern in the nervous system or the neural areas. So you can retrieve that pattern and keep practicing. And you need a little bit retrieval sort of cognition there because you have to retrieve that pattern to be able to work well. Another principle is that in therapy, we use that we, in order to improve functions, we want to continually practice that. I'm not saying each hour and each minute. I'm saying that whenever possible, you want to improve your function by using those tongue postures or facilitating those tongue movements to say certain speech sounds. You are using the structures to improve those neural substrates that are created in our you know, brain. There's some cortical maps and subcortical maps that actually registers different movements of speech. And when you're ready to, you know, get to the output, everything just kind of works together. Sometimes that is a time when not only our voluntary system or the cortical areas, the subcortical areas are managing everything, you know. So below the surface, it's like the foundation piece. And think about a building and the foundation. So the foundation piece is all the white matter tract underneath the cortex. They're all making sure everything is fine. And the cortex is saying, okay, here is your movement. You say yes and no, but this is what it is. Like, so you have to always to keep improving on your behaviors. You have to make sure that everything kind of works together. And then if you're working on sound, don't provide this child with other speech sounds because that's a problem there. You will not be able to create the strong circuits of learning. So I will be hyper-focused on one sound. Even if it is weird, I would say, you know what? We can play different games. Just follow the same sound. Keep doing, keep doing, keep doing. And keep our health facilitated the motor memory if you're teaching just one sound. It could be raw sound, ka sound, depending on you know, age appropriateness and adequacy. Then this was actually, when you have specific exercise, again, I would use the word synergy and that word harmony. So those muscle groups are recruited to give the maximum output. Then to do that, the muscles, you know, won't do the work if they don't do the work at all times. So just like, you know, you just uh, have to be, means you cannot train in one day and say, I'm done with the training. So you have to keep training for your marathon or anything that you have to run or anything you have to do physically training those big muscles. But for our small muscles in our vocal tract, you know, whatever we are using it for, because the whole vocal tract is useful for speech. So if you're looking at the muscles, so you are actually trying to establish some pattern. So that pattern becomes more specific when you're having specific stimuli to work on and have some prolonged period of practice because repetition is indeed important. And then you might say, well, do I do five minutes of therapy or 50 minutes of therapy? (laughs) There is a problem there. If you do just for five minutes, there is some weak pathways. But if you are actually creating some, you know, like real goal-oriented, whatever therapy you're doing. So you want to make sure that you are making those connections based on intensity of training. So intensity means how many minutes of speech therapy, how many times a week, those frequency and time gets into effect. And then timing of training. So what time is the best time to start the training? So do you have to wait? Do you have to do it now? Or how much time you do just the syllable practice and how much time you do syllables and word practice when you do connected speech? So there's a timing for everything. So you have to follow the protocol accordingly and all of us do that. But this is that kind of knowing at the level, like the explicitly you have to know like what's going on with you know the speech sound production pathways. So when I say speech sound production pathways, I'm actually talking about the neural pathways that are helping to get to those targets, you know, our target, our outcomes, our speech outcomes. So then saliency of training. So when you are training for cuss sound, 
don't train a sound that is very close to ka sound because they say that you're looking at distinctive features, but sometimes that's very problematic for children. Do you remember, like I talked about the somatosensory map and for that map to happen in a good way, you have to start out maximal opposition. Like I know that I should not use the term here because that's what you do, but the sounds have to be apart because you want to make a big contrast between two sounds if you're trying to say, if you're doing the two sounds that are very close together, the, our brain will not realize that there'll be always confusion. So imagine you have a Japanese speaker and you're trying to teach them raw and la together in one session. I will never do that. I'll say, teach one sound, establish that, and then get the other sound. If you do both, there'll be always some, you know, you know that that's a dialectal difference and they will always substitute raw for la and la for ra. But neuroplasticity, they say the saliency of training, that means to say you want to have uh, skilled movement, precise movement, and the movement that our brain recognizes and can help our brain to contrast that movement from the rest of the things. So that's a saliency. Mm, okay. Like, you know, you cannot, because if I say so a child has problems with this, 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 everything, then you don't know what to treat, you know, but you have to prioritize your list and say that this is what the problem is now. Let's just work on this and if we are not considering the salient features for our brain to create those pathways, then like therapy will be everywhere. So some people work on multiple phonemic approach. And I don't know how that works, but I had done that before with the kids. I couldn't really get much success. And I was going, okay, you know, it's a good stimulation and all, but ultimately I felt that you have to teach one at a time. That's what our brain learns. You have to create that habit and then slowly help generalize that habit and get into other sounds. And then we said time matters again. And we our neuroplasticity also has some great ways to help generalize because certain behaviors, they generalize really well. And I'm not saying behaviors like, okay, say ka sound or ga sound, but we have to know within the sounds like what kind of muscle patterns, what kind of muscle memory are needed to be able to help facilitate further production of the sounds at a later time, maybe in a word, maybe in a sentence, maybe in conversational speech. So whatever we do, we have to find out that perfect generalization. So there are some studies that say if you work on breathing, okay, you can generalize to loud speech, or if you have loud speech, you can generalize to articulation, but that doesn't happen for everyone. That's only for Parkinson's maybe. That's only for very specific neurodegenerative conditions. But if you're looking at developmental articulation errors, I feel like you have to understand that we want to facilitate generalization and transfers and not just, in a sense, what you call, you're not impeding that because the impeding part of it is interference. So you have to make sure you want to focus on transference of generalization. And you also want to make sure in the background, you have the cognition that you are going to make sure the speech sounds that are taught in a session do not interfere with one another because there'll be always some transference and learning causing lots of chaos mm -hmm. in the pathways that are already established. Mm -hmm. So think about that. You just build a nice path and you throw some yeah. weeds over there. You don't want to do that. You want to keep the path clean. And the Good. path leads from A to B without any interference. And that's what we want our kids to do. So practice, okay. practice, practice on the same path. And these are yeah. some of the principles, the basic ones. But then ultimately, these principles leads to high sensitivity in connecting all those proprioceptive, tactile, vibration, send a touch, like all of these kind of work together to lead to very specific amount of information that are stored in units. So that's hmm. all happening here, up here. Wow. And then we are not again putting those in isolation. While learning, we put those in isolated you know, segments. And then we look at all of these parameters and make sure in connective speech, we don't speak in syllables. We don't speak with phonemes. We don't speak with words. We have to speak in sentences. So when you say we speak, you have to speak in sentences. We have to make sure we are getting to that connectivity principle. Like we learn something, we generalize, we kind of take it throughout the utterance, throughout the sentence. And that is neural connectivity that is happening at all kinds of levels. When I say connectivity is happening here, at the word level, <laughs> syllable level, sentence level, whatever, like, you know, the stimuli, it's also happening at the level. So speech is slowly becoming automatic in nature because you don't have to worry about each segment and effortfully think, what am I supposed to do? Oh, sound sound. Oh, my tongue is supposed to go here, there, or whatever it is. But you are not thinking about that. It just happens because you're providing the right context, the right environment. And most of all, you know, all of us struggle with that. But I would say that's the best 
way to learn is to maintain that motivational level because you do not know how many circuits you tend to you know, rejuvenate. Interesting. Just kind of the circuits click together with learning. So you yeah. say motivation. If you talk about motivation, you are talking about learning. If you talk about learning, we say, oh, the person who needs to learn well really has to have good motivation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love it. I love it. And that kind of, you know, you're talking about the neural piece and I'm thinking about that, you know, the lateral bracing, the tongue's lateral bracing that is present during conversation, during conversational speaking. So yeah, yeah. So that's that oral piece. And then now we've got that neurological. I love that the mapping piece and you know, the compartments and yeah, wonderful. I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to this, I think. But thank you so much, Gianti. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Would you mind if attendees emailed you questions or comments? What is your email? Anytime. If you need anything. jray at semo.edu. Very straightforward. I like it. Good, good. Okay. Well, I'm going to wrap it up here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much for all of your information and your ideas and your thoughtful thinking and putting all of this together for us and adding a whole nother dimension. I really appreciate it. And in closing, I would like to thank all of you for being here and for tuning in and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast. And in a few days, you'll be able to access this course through speechtherapypd.com and you'll be able to watch it again if you want. And if you so desire, you can access the audio only version version on most popular podcast apps like Apple Podcast and Spotify and Podbean. And thank you so much for your supportive comments and your good reviews. Also, two more important things if you're planning ahead. Next month's speech link is also a topic that needs to be addressed in this day and time. And it's called the SLP's Role in Building Confidence and Joy in Kids with Learning Disabilities by Dr. Deborah Swain and Dr. Elaine Schneider. So mark your calendar and log on to Thursday, May 25 and May 25th at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern. Secondly, on Friday, May 12th, noon Pacific time, 3 o'clock Eastern time, I am doing a live three-hour course on five steps, a paradigm shift in capability-based, evidence-based speech therapy. And that's going to be for five-plus-year-old children with speech disorders. So thank you again, Jayanti, and to all of you. And I hope that you know just how much you are appreciated. Thank you for all that you do for your therapy kids. So we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be a part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit charboshart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time.